Welcome to Movable Dough. This is Steve Danielson. Each week on Movable Dough, I sit down with a composer to talk about their lives, their musical journeys, and, of course, their music. Come with me as we explore each unique path into composition and what they have to share with the world. For a complete archive of episodes, as well as access to the shorter segments called Movable Snippets, visit my website, sdcompose.com slash movabledough. Hey, this is Steve. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Movable Dough. My guest today is Dr. James Knox. James is a professor of music at Central Oregon Community College, where he conducts two major ensembles. In 2008, James and his wife started a community-based choir called the Bend Children's Choir, bringing valuable music learning skills through sight-reading sessions, vocal mentoring, and performances. Winter and spring of 2018, he was granted a sabbatical leave and worked with choirs in Estonia. His compositions have been performed across the United States, Canada, Mexico, and throughout South America and Europe. James Knox, welcome to Movable Dough. Thanks for having me. So it's hard to remember how we first connected and started talking about doing a Movable Dough interview, but I know it has been in the works for a while, so I'm glad to see it finally come to fruition. Likewise. So one place that I know we are connected online is the Facebook group Choral Composers, and you are the admin for that group, and it's a pretty fast-growing community. So what is your main purpose with this group? Why did you start it? Well, I, for me uh, and and composers that are kind of writing a lot of music, I, I thought it'd be a wonderful opportunity for composers that are writing things to be able to share on a platform of, of new works that they were um, working on or perhaps even uh, works that, that uh, particular groups have wanted them to, to do, whether it's commissions. And it really was just a chance for them to be able to speak out and kind of say, this is what's happening in my life right now. And, um, you know, I, I had a, a, a fairly good um, amount of people that were um, composers themselves. And I thought I'd just throw it out there. And and within, I don't even know how, how long I've, I've, I've put it up there, but uh, we're, we're almost approaching 2000, which which really kind of um, speaks volumes about uh, just having that area of, of need in our community about just choral composers. Yeah. Has there been anything surprising to you uh, during the time that you've been dealing with this group? Yeah. You know, I've had a couple of people reach out to me. Uh, one of them was from uh, the Netherlands and uh, he, he said, thanks to you, I was able to to post some of my things here. And since then I've had a, a couple projects come in and, and uh, I've had various groups perform my, my pieces. I'm putting a, a CD or like a, some type of um, Spotify list of all his pieces being recorded. So, oh, very cool. you know, yeah. And I think, I think that is just one of the, the things that um, was kind of not expected, but all of a sudden it's like, wow, I guess that is happening. It's helping, <laughs> it's helping people be noticed uh, for their works of, you know, living composers. I think the majority of us and me being a, a choir director, um, we tend to, to perform songs of, of composers in the past. And, right. um, and, and so it's, it's nice to get a refreshing uh, idea of, of who's out there. And that's, that's across the world. It's so true. I, yeah. I conduct middle school choir and mm-hmm. anytime we're doing something from a living composer, I'm like, oh yeah. And I, I talked to our composer about this piece and like, wait, this person's still alive. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, we're still making music. <laughs> it's fantastic. Yeah. So James, you're in central Oregon now. Uh, mm-hmm. Where did you grow up? Were you, did you grow up in central Oregon? 
I didn't, but I, not too far, just north. I, I grew up in a small town, mountain town of Sandy, Oregon, by Mount Okay. Hood. And, um, you know, I've always had music be a part of my life, but I, I grew up all 18 years there and, and then went off to college and did other things. So I've, I've lived in Oregon, just various places throughout my life. What did you want to be when you grew up, when you were growing up there in Sandy, Oregon? <laughs> well, at first I wanted to be a firefighter like my father, Okay. um, you know, and uh, which I thought was a wonderful thing. But I've always had a connection with music, um, usually through uh, with my mom. She was a pianist and um, and guitar player and would sing in the, in the kind of typical grow, growing of, of churches. And then her brother was actually a composition major at University Oh, of wow. Washington. Okay. Uh, believe it or not. And, um, and he's a painter and he lived in Europe. And I, I just, I knew that I've always had an interest in music. I've always was involved in musicals and, and things like that, but I really didn't get serious in the music music and think it could be something that, that would be worthwhile. Probably my freshman year in high school, when I started taking lessons and, and um, developing my voice that way and being more involved in, in the uh, typical district and solo competitions and, and doing quite well in those. And I, I figured I, I really enjoyed music and I wanted to do something. I, I wanted a performance at first, um, but then I, I switched minds after a while. Um, and so, um, but I love history as well. And so there's lots of things, but I think music really settled in probably by my high school year, beginning of that anyway. Oh, cool. So thinking, Yeah. thinking way back, Yeah. what is the, what is the earliest musical experience that you can remember that sort of had an impact on you, whether making music or listening to it? Sure. Um, I would say uh, during my freshman year, um, you know, we had the whole slew of, of musicals coming out and um, I was always a musical kind of guy, but lame is um, was, was at the top there. And my mom surprised me with uh, tickets. They were uh, performing at the Portland civic auditorium. And that was the first major performance that I went to. And it really, it really moved me quite a bit to the point where I knew that, that, that is where I wanted to be um, is, is to do something like that, whether it was on stage. Another moment that I had is when I did an all state uh, choir thing. And one, I guess the conductor, if Ely, <laughs> that rings a bell, um, Dr. E. Ely. Uh, he had to excuse himself for whatever reason, and he wanted someone to to uh, lead the choir in warm-ups. And I thought, well, I could do that. I was doing that a little bit in high school. And so that rush came over me when I was able to, to use my face as expression and my hands to be able to to lead voices together in, in a sound. And I, I thought that was an amazing an amazing feeling and experience. So I think with both seeing something on stage of a finished product versus something that, that you just do on an average every day of warming vocal folks up and then believing in what you're wanting them to do was, was a rush that, that I never got over. So um, that's, it hooked me in. Nice. Sure. Yes. So I did see on your online bios that you have several singing credits. You talked about your, your voice studies, uh, Yeah. so including Javert in a production of Les Mis, Yeah. uh, Poobah in the Mikado and Jesus in the JS box, St. Mark's passion. So you started training as a freshman in high school. Uh, are you still performing professionally today? 
I, I am, but it's far and few between just because of, of um, you know, having four kids and, and going through that and being in Central Oregon in general, you don't have a lot of, um, you know, singing opportunities with the exception of, of some local productions um, as well. But I was a, a, a vocalist um, that uh, a, a performance uh, major that when I, I tried out for NAPSA and I became a um, national finalist. Oh, wow. And and as a baritone, and I was going to pursue that. That was that was something I wanted to do. Um, and so, um, long story short, after I met my wife, we got married. We went to Ireland. I actually auditioned uh, for Cork University, and was going to sign up and be a part of their opera house there. And and um, not everything turned out the way I thought it would. And so I came back and I wanted to go into education because I was able to work with some other mentors like Dr. Bruce Brown. You might know that particular name, um, but he was a mentor of mine. And I remember him mentioning to me that he uh, he, he said, you know, you, you can kind of do whatever you, you would really want to do. And he goes, you really have a gift in conducting and, and leading choirs as well. So, you know, if, if you enjoy education, you can definitely do that too. And I remember him saying that. And I, as much as I enjoyed performance, I really enjoyed watching students um, or individual choirs um, really grow um, as, a, as a musician. And that, to me, was more of my cradle of my passion, for sure, um, in addition to everything else that I do as well. But I went back into education. And so I never looked back and thought, boy, I wonder what it would have been like to be <laughs> a perform in performance. It would have been wonderful. But, you know, a performance life with with having four kids that Sometimes I can get rough, but, um, you know, I, I, I uh, never look back and think, oh, I, I would have, could have. But um, I've definitely enjoyed every journey, every, every way here. So it's been good. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> so when did you actually begin writing music? Uh, fairly young, I would say. I've always had um, uh, particular pieces that I would, I would not necessarily write, but I would imagine what it would sound like with some voices in particular with the piano. I always play the piano. Um, and then I, I began writing musically in high school. Um, I wrote a short couple small pieces uh, that we're trying to do for a quartet of some sort. And it didn't really develop anywhere. <laughs> but then I started writing music again as I began in college. And then, um, and so I had a stockpile of a bunch of just musical ideas. I, I took a trip to Europe with a friend and I began writing music again of my experiences in Europe, um, particularly Scotland and some of these more scenic type of countries. And, um, and then I started taking some compositional classes when I was uh, going up for my, my master's and so on. And um, it just kind of stuck with me. And once I took my sabbatical, I'm um, going to um, Estonia and some various places, I really started doing an outpour of, of writing all these pieces that I had in my head and what I wanted to say and other poetry that I collected along the way. And I just began writing. So um, I've pushed out a lot of particular songs with the isolation of COVID and stuff in particular. Um, and and really, it's it's been an outpour probably for about only five years, but I've always had a oh, stockpile. Wow of pieces that I've, I've had, I still have them. I don't know if I'll ever finish those particular ones or <laughs> use them as a, as, as use them as a, just an educational thing. 
but um, you know, it, it, you definitely have to start somewhere. And you, I think you sure. compile all those things. And I think we're all uh, composers or singers in our head, and we keep singing the song till the day we we pass. And so it's it's always an adventure and something that's that I do every single day. So I want to talk about your time in England and other parts of Europe because mm-hmm. uh, you did mm-hmm. spend uh, some time there. What yeah. what took you there in the first place? In England. Uh, there was a consortium um, with community colleges where they would um, audition various um, uh, professors to take a group of students to study abroad. And they had these various places. One was in England uh, or London, particularly. Uh, one was in um, Barcelona, Spain. And then there's Florence, Italy, and a couple short ones, I think, in, in South America somewhere. And um, I just put some things that proposals that I would put together, uh, whether it was uh, teaching rock and roll history, which I thought would be a good thing in London, um, and as well as some other like music fundamental classes. And they happened to select me. And I thought that was great. So yeah. I, I, uh, I embarked on this journey with uh, our four young kids at the time. And, uh, and away we went for three months. I taught at the University of London taking those groups of students sprinkled in with um, some other um, students that happened to be wanting to take some interesting classes that actually were a part of University of London. And then did you, did you live in other parts of Europe as well? I thought I saw I, something about that. Yeah, I, I did. So we, so we, we lived in London for uh, three and a half months um, and, and Mar- near Marleybone. And then we moved, we traveled down and stayed in various places in, in the central part of Europe, in particular with the Netherlands and, and France and Germany, and kind of did one of those those bigger type of um, city, Italy, and as uh-huh. well, and kind of city dwellings. And then I went back for my sabbatical, um, and that's where we almost stayed for about uh, five months, um, particularly in our sister city in Italy called Belluno. It's, it's kind of nestled up in the northwestern part of Italy next to the Dolomites. So I spent some time there. We have friends and I became um, a visiting professor um, at the Miari Communal School there and uh, did lecture in, uh, of opera studies at a conservatory uh, south from there uh, about an hour. Wow. Yeah. So, so what lessons do you think you took from that experience that you're using in your life now? Well, that's a good question. Um, I, I, I think as a, I mean, as a composer, I would composer, say. conductor, teacher, whatever, whatever lessons yeah. you brought back. Yeah. Well, I, I think sabbatical, you know, that, that particular word means to refresh and rejuvenate. <laughs> and, and all the, all while I was, I was not necessarily, um, you know, relaxing all the time. It gave me a different perspective about just, culturally where where people were understanding the historical sense and 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 the history of of certain communities and and, and embedded in in bigger cities alike or even different countries and Estonia in particular I've always really enjoyed that and so I, I took back um kind of this more worldview of of just um gathering information that um and experiences that you can't have by reading textbooks or watching videos. I just, it just changed me um, about my pace in life, um, 
just how I reflect and how I view the world and what's happening. And, and um, I felt refreshed and rejuvenated that way, I guess. And so I think most of my music tends to have this eclectic um, feel and sound and and I'm able to try to capture that in whatever particular Mm -hmm. style that I'm writing in or particular area that I'm focusing on, like Flutian or in China versus somewhere in, uh, somewhere else in Spain, like the piece called the uh, the Wanderer, and so on. So, I think I, I I take on an eclectic view of that. If that makes sense, I didn't yeah. really thought through on that, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's turn. Let's switch into teacher mode for a second. Let's offer okay. some advice to some budding composers. So, Fun. in your in your opinion, what's the most important personality trait or strength that someone needs to be successful as a composer? I, I think you have to learn to be open and to be flexible. Um, you know, there's there's different composers out there. There's there's ones that that are purely out there for for um, uh, you know advertisement. Uh, you know, trying to get a quick whatever and arrangements. There's um, probably the the best thing you could say about composers that you, you need to be patient and you need to be willing to, to listen and reflect on how people view your music as well. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a big thing to just, just relax and be able to, to, to go back in silent mode and just be able to, to hear what other, other people think about your music. I hope that kind of answers some of that question. No, I, I thought that was great. Spoken like a true professor. <laughs> uh, so something non-music related to okay. sort of end of this first segment uh what was your favorite trip you've ever taken so you've you've been many different places sure what's one that stands out in your mind i would have to say um the the, the last one would be the sabbatical that i took but specifically would be the people from Belluno. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I think so often we, we, we kind of get in this mode or stuck in this mode where we are just traveling. We have to just see, see, see everything and, and, and experience whatever, but we got to experience the people in their daily life and what they were doing. So we, um, that was probably the most special part is when we, we didn't know, we didn't expect anything other than just to connect and, by chance, we happen to connect with a running group because my wife runs. Um, I try to run, but that doesn't happen. But all my other kids run. And so we connected with a running group. And then that stemmed off to um, a choral group, believe it or not, one of the one of the runners from the cor- with this choral group that was well known in the region uh, said, I, didn't, I, I knew you're visiting here, but I didn't know that you were um, – maybe do you want to sing in our choir? And so that became a thing. We performed uh, per, uh, a couple concerts there. And um, then we got to know a particular family and, and understand their agricultural way of living and farming. And so we would spend a week and we chopped wood and oh, we wow. stacked it and we planted, uh, helped plant their garden and rototill. And, and I got to do that with, uh, with the kids and just, I don't know, just kind of, you know, get your hands in other things other than just walking around. And that was probably the, the best experience that I, that we've ever taken from that is, is, is 
living in the ways of, of how the people live and how they reflect life. And it was amazing. That was probably the best part out of all my travels was that particular stint of time in Belluno. Yeah, sounds life-changing. Yeah, it was. All right. Well, before we take a quick break, I'm going to ask my guest here to play a quick game that this week we're calling Felix and Fanny Sitting in a Tree, W-R-I-T-I-N-G. So I'm going to ask you a series of five true or false statements about Felix and Fanny Mendelssohn. You're a winner just for playing the game, so just do your best. Okay. All right. All right. <laughs> All right. Number one, true or false. Fanny's mother predicted her daughter's career as a pianist by describing her newborn baby as having Bach fugal fingers. True. That is true. And Fanny turned out to be very talented, even performing Bach's well-tempered clavier by memory for her father's birthday. Uh, number two. True or false, Felix composed a wedding song for Fanny the night before her wedding ceremony. The night before? Hmm. False? That is false. He had <laughs> he had promised to write one, but he never did. So Fanny okay. wrote it herself. <laughs> she wrote it herself the night before she got married. <laughs> I'll be darned. <laughs> Number three. Okay. True or false? Felix was the first one to perform Bach's St. Matthew's Passion since Bach's death in 1750. I want to say true. That is true. In 1829, uh, he revived interest in Bach's music. Yes. Number four. True or false? In addition to composition, Felix was also an excellent painter. Hmm. Never heard of that. I want to say false. It is actually true. He actually loved watercolors. Okay. Um, Right. And last, number five, true or false? To remember the famous composers that had shaped her career, Fanny named her only son Sebastian Ludwig Felix Hansel. True. That is true. Named after J.S. Bach, Beethoven, and her brother yes. Felix. So Oof. very good. Four out of five. I think that's the, uh, the best we've had so far. <laughs> really? Okay. I thought maybe it was the first one you've ever had. So I don't know. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will listen to some of James' composition. Welcome back. This is Steve Danielson. I'm talking today with Dr. James Knox. So we're going to start today with Life to Everything for SATB Chorus and Piano. This piece is based on a quote from Greek philosopher Plato. Music gives a soul to the universe, wings to the mind, flight to the imagination, and life to everything. I really enjoyed the very rhythmic piano underneath the choral parts. I felt like it was a representation of the wings and flight. A am I on the right path here? Absolutely. So what were, what were you trying to convey with this piece? Well, like most of my pieces, when I run across text, um, I try to visualize what that text would look like in my brain, as well as how would that, look like on paper when it mm -hmm. comes to music and is it possible for the chorus or whoever is involved to sound like that how can i write it that way and if i struggle too much on that then i i simply move on and just think of it as an idea um but this one really gravitate towards that because i i really feel that you know music gives a soul to the universe and and music is to me is the bedrock of 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 just human um, emotion and expression. And music doesn't have to be something as a song. It, it could be 
Um, it could be something in the sense of dancing and and celebratory matter that way. So when I when I read that particular uh, passage from Plato, um, I wanted to create a atmospheric type of feel to it, and I also wanted it to be accessible for choirs to sing. Um, I didn't want to write something as it's not a simple text, but it isn't long. Um, it's fairly straightforward um, when it comes to understanding what it means. So I, I want it to be accessible for, for choirs to be able to sing, to carry across that message um, and to become kind of a hallmark or staple of why we do what we do as singers in this case. And so I wanted to create the piano to kind of give it that life and to have lots of movement. And so um, I thought, well, there's no better way of doing that than writing something in 12-8 that has that pulsing, um, you know, triplet feel mm -hmm. within those four strong beats. And I like the number four. I think it sounds very grounded to me. And so um, I, I, I wanted to pick a key that was also accessible to singers. I, I often write choral music for moderate to advanced ensembles. Um, so when I wrote this particular piece, um, I, I wanted to be able to be accessible as much as possible. And that, um, that's why I actually have a couple other versions of that. I have a, an SSAA with some Divisi in it. And then I wrote an SATB in the same key, not the SSAA, but the SATB version with strings and percussion um, as well. So that was my spin and my take on it. And um, I love um, G minor going to E flat major. I think E flat major is a very rich and colorful uh, key that reminds me of, of, um, of kind of a gray blue color. So I like those colors. Yeah, I love that. So do you think this is accessible for like a, a high school group? Would they be able to, to pull this I, off, I do you think, think? Yeah, and I, actually they have. I've had a, a, a handful of performances of this particular one. Uh, not sure of the SSAA version, but the, definitely the SATB. And I think since I, one of the hardest selling points as a, as a choral composer, especially new, is to have people perform your music. And so when yeah. you have midi samples um it's like please envision that with me um but <laughs> you know how well does it work with with the with the voices so when denison university reached out to me uh that they wanted to feature my song in their um tutti festival that they do on an annual basis in ohio um i thought okay here we go that's exactly what i wanted so when i got that recording i think it definitely helped uh, with that i had a couple high school groups uh two in particular in chicago area uh performed it as well as somewhere in new york i believe so awesome. they're, they're yeah they're doing it okay well we are now going to listen to life to everything performed at the 2d festival at denison university with harris ipek conducting Yeah. 
Our second piece today is The Wanderer for choir, string orchestra, and percussion. This piece shows an example of your epic style, very full cinematic writing. So what is your key to making something feel epic? Well, I think it's how you treat the voices uh, with long sweeping lines, uh, for sure. Um, there's there's various chord changes that make it sound epic. I think uh, modally speaking, I, I think that Dorian, particular Dorian keys work well uh, when it comes to epic writing. So mm. when I do write an epic piece such as this, or actually often, um, I try to pick modes um, that have that reflect that. I often picked, uh, like I said, Dorian modes um, with that raised six. So if you have kind of a, a first of the minor key and going to the fourth of that, it, it goes to major, which tends to have a, a, a lovely lift and kind of a, an ethereal feel to it. Mm -hmm. um, I also uh, pick Lydian uh, with the raised fourth that, that tends to have more of that magical um, reminiscent of uh, R.V. Williams, Rayfawn Williams, and uh, some of his stuff as well. So um, that's kind of my basis when it comes to to writing that. And then I kind of model that out from there. Okay. So this piece in particular takes its text from Spanish poet Antonio Machado. Uh, since the version we'll listen today is a mock-up and we won't actually hear the words, could you tell us what this piece is about? Yeah, actually, this particular piece is... Uh, a poem about traveling and that um, none of us really get to pick our own road. <laughs> uh, it's kind of reminds me of the Robert Frost, uh, the road less traveled by mm. or less taken. And this particular uh, piece, it really kind of reflects um, more or less the idea of, of the traveler and that, Although there's a path that we choose in life that we go to, nothing is ever obsolete or going to stay concrete. And that it's these paths that we take that often shape and mold us. But really, it's such a short stint in our lifetime that it can either make a mark or it doesn't. And when we look back on it, we often don't get that chance too because it often is already washed away with other things. And so to me, it's, it's a symbolism of, of, of a romantic way of looking at life um, and hence kind of his style of writing, him being part of that generation 98 of, um, you know, these revolutionary thinkers and novelists alike um, during, during a time that seemed to be kind of had a sense of unrest um, in, in where, where people were going. I think it's very reflective of that time. So it's um, it's it's one of those pieces that that uh, it's not a long poem, but it it really makes you think about just kind of the the choices that we make in life. Are they are they always good? Are they always bad? Do we have those choices? So um, it 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 really kind of touched me in, in in a way that I felt was very descriptive and very imaginary um, as to how it would feel if we were isolated and walking alone in that wilderness what would it feel like so that's why I, I wrote it with strings i think strings in a very symphonic way with choir tends to lend to have that type of uh, flavor and that type of color that's needed for uh, a piece like this all right
Well, we're going to listen here to a sample of The Wanderer. Next, we'll go to a recent premiere. So on March 24th of this year, uh, Ember Ensemble premiered your piece, Ludi Yan. So I'd like to read the text of this piece, if that's okay. Yeah, please. Uh, this comes from a, post, uh, a poem called Quest by Carrie Williams Clifford. Mm-hmm. My goal outdistances the utmost star, yet is encompassed in my inmost soul. I am my goal, my quest to know myself to chart and compass this unfathomed sea, myself must plumb the boundless universe. My soul contains all thought, all mystery, all wisdom of the great infinite mind. This is to discover, I must voyage far, at last to find it in my pulsing heart. Mm-hmm. So first of all, I didn't hear any mention of the words Ludiyan. So what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... Um, as a visionary type of composer, um, I stumbled across, I, I often just look for images that would perhaps spark an idea or maybe a, a poem that would go along with it. And I found, happened to find these caves. It's a it's a reed flute cave, as I say. It has nothing to do with reeds being found inside it, like we think of a flute, um, but they're rather they're on the outside. But what's interesting about the Ludion cave is that it's an intu- uh, really a, a, a beautiful interpretation of the Chinese culture, uh, more or less. And I think of caves as being a wonderful preserver of time. Yeah. And and you can, re- if you really dig deep, you can, you could see uh, all the things and all the patterns uh, and in the many years of the stagmites and how they are, you know, how they fall down. But it's, it's a very beautiful picturesque uh, 
thing of something that is um, uh, culturally there for the Chinese culture because it's very symbolic. I don't want to get into too much of all that. It goes back to the Yang Dynasty as, as well as, as a place of refuge um, for, for humans. And so this particular cave um, has been used for ceremonial gatherings and so on. So I, I, I recommend looking at, at the, the Ludianya uh, cave. It's, it's absolutely beautiful and breathtaking uh, to look at. So that's, that's, where, that's where the cave idea came from. <laughs> and then how does this poem, this quest, how does that relate to the cave? Well, Harry Williams Clifford um, was embedded in, in deeply um, involved in political uh, issues in particular with 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 race. Um, and even though she died before actual civil rights, she died like in something like 1934 or something. Mm -hmm. um, she um, uh, was really wanting to understand what it's like to and I thought, wow, if you had a goal to outdistances the utmost star, if you, one person can make a difference about where to, where to move, where can we turn to to kind of, uh, you know, nature-wise to see how something endures that long? Well, caves, <laughs> I don't know how that pulls together, but caves, uh, caves tend to have a blueprint of uh, and be able to withstand a lot of uh, earth things over yeah. time, earthquakes and so on. And I thought I'd kind of marry these two together because it's um, her, her text is very picturesque as well. It's very um, visionary. You know, you, you have the unfathomed sea and you have like the boundless universe and, and, and so on the great infinite mind and the, the voyage to go farther and farther with the pulsing of the heart, as long as they're living. So I thought, wow, that's I somehow I can marry those two together. And for me, somehow it made sense. So <laughs> no, I love that. Yeah. So all right. It, yeah. Well, with the cathedral space that it was performed in, I think it ties all that together as well. Uh, you get the the eternity and you get the cave echoing and I mean just it pulls together so nicely. Absolutely. And if I can really quickly, I, I use specific drums that, that they were able to grab some, but not all. I, it, originally, I wanted to use, I think you pronounce it iru, eru, um, mm -hmm. the Chinese um, uh, equivalent of a violin. And so I wanted to use that and I wanted to find instruments that kind of symbolize that. So you have like the tongu drums and the gong that kind of symbolize this idea of, of good fortune and strength that's kind of one thing there and then you'll hear temple blocks that kind of are a re very repetitive pattern almost minimalistic in that sense uh, that represent the divine will and then you hear the gong and kind of a, a lower drum that represent kind of that pulsing heart mm. that keeps moving forward and although although the the recording that you'll hear is is very washy in that sense, I think the acoustics in there lend to give the idea of perhaps being in the cave. If, yeah. if the acoustics were that way, not all caves are that right. way. But, <laughs> but, uh, you know, we can pretend to, to have that viv vivid vivid message of kind of the quest of leading somewhere. So I thought they did a wonderful job, and I and even though they weren't be able to get the Eru um, available, they had a violinist there that that really reflected that bending of the pitch and and the and the sense of of that type of wine 
of, of the whining kind of feel. So it, it was wonderful. They did a great job. All right. Well, we are going to listen to Ludi Yan performed here by Ember Ensemble with Deborah Simpkin King as conductor.
All right, our last piece today is something a little bit more whimsical, limericks. <laughs> this set of short pieces featuring choir, percussion, and woodwind quintet. Uh, we're going to listen to Brian the Lion, which you described as a circus-like atmosphere. So yeah. tell us more about this set and about Brian the Lion in particular. Yeah, so limericks date back quite a few um, uh, years, but uh, there was a general English poet by the name of um, Edward Lear that kind of brought it back to the popular limelight. I started looking at these pieces and what I like about them, you know, they got the, the A-A-B-B-A form. It's it's five lines and they are rhyming and there's nothing better to, to come up with some quirky, fun kind of things that would rhyme. And so as I was digging through, I tried to find some anonymous ones. I tried to find some by Edward Lear himself. And um, I came out with uh, no less than 12 different ones. <laughs> Uh, and I thought, well, if, if I can create that kind of lyrical or whimsical type of feeling, um, piano could do a little bit of justice with that. But I thought that woodwinds could really play off it, with that well, in particular with the clarinet and the bassoon. Mm -hmm. um, and then I added a bunch of percussion with it. And so the piece that you hear, Brian and Lion, um, if, if I may read the... Uh, the, the text here. Yeah, I'd love to hear it's, it. It's, it's probably the funniest uh, out of all of them. So if you can picture this, this circus type atmosphere, and when you hear it, you'll hear like uh, whistles and things like that. And it gets really, really close. And then it go and, and with the dynamics, it gets really loud. And then it kind of goes away um, as if it's just passing. But it's basically a circus performer named Brian once smiled as he rode on a lion they came back from the ride, but with Brian inside and the smile on the face of the lion. <laughs> it's anonymous on that one. But I, if you listen really carefully, you'll, you'll hear a cluster of chords when they, you know, I'm picturing the audience um, uh, trying to figure out what happened to Brian. Where is he? <laughs> And, and so I use uh, this cluster type kind of chord that sounds very unsettling. Um, and, and you should hear it. I hear I, I play kind of a, a major chord against a minor chord and then I cluster it like crazy. And it uh -huh. just sounds very unsettling for sure. But funny at the same <laughs> time. <laughs> All right. Well, we are going to now listen to a mock up of Brian the Lion from Limericks. Thank you. 
Well, James, what are you working on now that you can tell us about? Well, I'm glad you asked because uh, <laughs> this, this is something that's been in the works for many years. Um, as I mentioned before, I have four kids. Um, three of them are triplets, believe it or not. And they're, wow. they're Yeah, they're uh, some in California, one's in Oregon right now. And then I have a younger that's 16. So, you know, before you know it, they they, they disappear and go away and, and uh, at least out of the household. And um as when they were growing up, they always wanted me to share bedtime stories with them. And I would just make up these random kind of stories, these epic kind of stories that I don't know where they came from. But this was during the time when uh, I would say like the Lord of the Rings and, and things like that kind of was becoming popular. And they were too young to understand this. Mm-hmm. But as a child, I uh, my father introduced all those books to me and I read them including the Lion, Witch, and the wardrobe and stuff like that. So I've always had this kind of connection with that. So my storytelling uh, was um, kind of reflective of that. So I been writing an actual um, children's book story um, and it's a made up fictional character and it's called the spectacular adventures of Chester McBricklebaum. Um, it's a funny name. Uh, brickle is an old English word mean bridge and mm-hmm. bomb means wood in German and it takes place uh, so it's historical fiction so it takes place um, in, a, in a town actually called Chester and hence that's where he gets his name he's named after his father and his father signs up for World War One, and and uh, and tragically he dies and his mother dies as well um, in a drowning accident, he ends up moving in with his aunt and uncle south of that in the south slope of the Shropshire Hills. Saying all that, and I'll make it very short because I don't want to go on too long, <laughs> but um, the adventure is with Chester, and he has to wrestle with his fear of losing his father and what that means about sacrifice and uh, to understand the grab grasp the terms of understanding that about water in general, about the river, because his mother died in a river. And um, he ends up using this imagination in the backyard and notices a a strange looking creature known as a hob. And this hob, he wants to follow it and then follows. And all of a sudden he realizes that he's super small and he has to figure out uh, how to get out of there. And he realizes that he's the chosen one from these nymphs. It says they have to sprinkle this water on top of a hill, the Shropshire Hills, which is known as the Reckon, which is very influential of, of Tolkien as well. Um, and uh, there's 17 movements in all in this piece. It's a cor- huge choral work. Um, I'm trying to get illustration with it. And it consists of Chester himself as a tenor. And then you have um, Aldrich, which is a hob as a tenor. You have, and, and you have all these other fictional characters. One's a male fairy from Scotland. That's his helper. You've got the evil um, Boggle. His name is Drusus. Of course, he's a bass. And then you have the three nymphs that are soprano, soprano, and alto, followed by chorus. So it's for chamber orchestra. And it, com- it comprises of, of 17 movements. It's probably going to be about an hour and a half long. So that's the big piece that I'm working on. I've never done anything that large before on that scale, yeah. but um, it's it's fun to relive that. And I told my kids I have the whole story laid out, and I read I read it to my kids, and they they loved it. It took them right back to 
when they were kids growing up, um, when I would tell them funny stories. So, <laughs> you know, I, I, I guess I just go on on all these tangents, but I, I really enjoy trying to create, if anything, as a, as a composer, even though I'm a full-time professor and teaching in, in the traditional music sense of, of choral classes and music fundamentals and ear training, um, I have a big uh, heart for writing music. And I, and I always felt that choral music, you need to experience it as, as something emotionally um, and, and visually as well. So my, a lot of my music, um, I want to have that epic story feeling. I want them to sure. really feel like they're living inside that particular moment. Um, so that's my big thing that I'm working on. That's awesome. Well, if you need a bass to come down to help for the no. premiere of that, let me know. <laughs> you want to play the you want to play the evil Bruceus? Yes. Oh, I'm I'm great at evil. <laughs> well, if Fantastic. my listeners want to learn more about you, uh, what's your website or social media? Yeah, so you can you can go to Facebook, put James Knox at any of that. I I don't have anything up here, but I have a a, a website as well. Uh, it's called Knox Sheet Music. It's through a Google uh, as well, and maybe we can put that on your notes I, mm-hmm. I can give that to you later i can't ramble it off the the like of me but um you can find me on youtube as well where i post all my uh upcoming things and things that i've worked on as well so um yeah check it out i'm on every every type of i know media platform including jw pepper for sheet music as well and sheet music plus and and so on so just type in my name and put composer and i'm, I'm sure you'll find something that's good <laughs> well, hey, listeners out there, make sure that you also visit the Movable Dough website. I host it through my Composer Conductor page, so it's sdcompose.com slash dough. There you can find a full archive of all the episodes I've done and see the list of all the fantastic composers I've talked to. James Knox will be added to that list today. You'll also find the growing collection of Movable Snippets, the shorter version of the podcast where I share one song from a composer and give them a chance to tell you about the piece. As of today, I have 132 different episodes or snippets to binge, so visit sdcompose.com slash dough today and help me keep the music moving. Well, James, thank you so much for joining me today on Movable Dough. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. I appreciate it very much. My guest today was composer Dr. James Knox. If you have a recommendation for a future guest or an idea for the show, please email me at movabledough at gmail.com. This is Steve Danielson. Keep the music moving. <laughs>